We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 tonight. Isaiah chapter 9. If you've been with us before, you know we've been working through the Gospel of John for quite a long time, and we'll pick it right back up after Christmas, but it seemed appropriate to stop and look at the Christmas story, and tonight we're going to look at it from way out, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus with a prophecy that is about Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of context here because this prophecy was not given in a vacuum. It was actually given at one of the darker points in Israel's history, and things were quite a mess. I think if you wanted to sum the entire situation up in two words, it would be deep darkness. See, at this time, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Ephraim, the southern kingdom of Judah, and there was Assyria, an international superpower close to them that was threatening to overtake them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And as leaders often do, the leader that they had sadly did not turn to God. He turned to his own path, to his own wisdom, and decided that what he needed to do was to try to make a deal. And the deal that they were looking to make was something like this. King Pekah of Ephraim, which was this northern kingdom, had formed alliance with King Rezin of Syria. And they were trying to get King Ahaz, who was the, the leader of the, the southern kingdom, to come into their alliance. And the thinking there was, this is our best shot standing together to stand against these Assyrians. And he gets in his head that Assyria won't attack if he, do, if he, doesn't, uh, uh, if he does join with them. But his plan backfires on him in two different ways. Because he didn't join with the northern guys, now they want to attack uh, the southern kingdom. And then, of course, Assyria was after them to start with. But the real substantive problem of here wasn't his scheming and dreaming and his political machinations. It's the fact that he did not turn to God in the midst of his problems. So even from the context here, before we get into the text, there's a little nugget for us. That any time we face trouble, the right response, whether it's a big problem or a small problem, is always to turn to God. Not to take matters into our own hands, but to turn to God and seek His wisdom and His counsel and His help. And then, of course, we make wise decisions flowing out of that. And in the midst of his not listening, not doing the right thing, God raised up a prophet named Isaiah to try to get his attention, to try to get him to turn and do the right thing. But of course, that did not happen. And things get so bad, we find out in chapter 8, that this is what's said. It says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth, and they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So there again, if you got two words, it's deep darkness. But let me give you some good news tonight. Our God is not afraid of the dark. And some of us come in here tonight, if we're honest, this is not the happiest time of the year. In fact, this is the dark season. 
And there could be darkness for all kinds of different reasons. For some, it is financially very tight. Things have not gone the way that you thought they were going to go. Maybe you lost a job this year. Maybe you had something unexpected come in. And there's a darkness in your land, proverbially. Beyond that, maybe money's very tight. Maybe you're in a difficult season of life with aging parents that you're looking out for or very young children. Both those things can be very challenging. For others, perhaps the darkness is more personal. The darkness of sin. Maybe you've come in here tonight and you've got something running in the background that you're trying to hide from everyone. You need to know that God is not afraid of even that darkness. And the call to you tonight, even from the context of this passage, is to bring that darkness out into the light. And just like he sent his word through Isaiah to the children of Israel back then, he sends his word to you tonight. A word of grace, a word of mercy, a word of saying, come to me, let me help. Our God is not afraid of the dark. And as we get to our text, you begin to see that wonderful light emerge right here in verse 1. Look at it with me. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So you can tell from the text here, there's about to be a significant change. That word but indicates a new tide, a new tone is descending from what you saw at the end of chapter 8. But we also need to be very real about the depth of what they are experiencing. The word gloom here is very strong. The word anguish here is very strong. But what he's saying is that there is a day coming when even this darkest dark and this gloomiest gloom and this most anguishing anguish will be put away. And the way he describes this, look at this. It says, in the former time, he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and into the land of Naphtali. And what he's talking about here is the discipline that they do experience and the conquering that happens. It happens in these areas first. They were uh, two areas along the northern border of Israel. They were the first to be conquered by the Assyrian king. And even to call them to mind spoke of the gloom and hardship that the people would have experienced. But then watch this. In the very next phrase it says, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. And this is very interesting language here because it is in the future or excuse me, it's in the past, but it's spoken about the future. It's called the prophetic perfect, to speak in the past tense of a future event. And what he's describing here, <coughs> as we find out from what comes in just a moment, is that these particular areas where they were conquered would be kind of the primary areas of ministry for Jesus when he walked the earth. One writer said it like this, God came to his people first, where they had suffered the most. And from that place, he launched salvation for the world. So the second good news point there for us tonight is that our God meets us right where we need it most. Where you are the most concerned tonight, God can do some of his best work. Where you are the most beaten up tonight, God wants to bring his deepest healing. Where you are the most anxious God wants to bring you the greatest comfort. And remember the context that he would have been speaking this into here. 
<coughs> these people would have been experiencing this great discipline. They had they've gone through the, the leader making very poor decisions. They're under the hand of discipline of God, and he's saying that there is a day coming in the future that where it was the darkest, I'm going to bring the brightest light. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 2. Look at this. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So again, something that happened, but it's talked about, or excuse me, something that will happen, but it's talked about it as if it has already happened. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness, and on them light has shined. And the fact that he uses this darkness and light, this motif, we've seen this in the Gospel of John, this almost compare and contrast about what they were experiencing and what God was going to bring. And the fact that it is repeated shows its significance and its emphasis. <laughs> Look also at this in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Now, the fact that the nation has been multiplied here, this is significant as well. Because they would have experienced a great decimation. And what he's saying is, in the future, you're going to experience a great multiplication. And for a group of people that their land and their people would have been kind of the biggest things that they would have felt God's blessing, that other people would have looked at them and, and the other nations and so on and so forth, <coughs> this would have been significant encouragement to them. But then he goes on and uses other metaphors as well. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So here we have agrarian and military imagery. It's very interesting that these two would be combined, but again, it's something that they would have immediately understood. A larger group of people, a larger group of land. Now there's going to be more food in the future. There's going to be military victory. It will be like that. That's what Isaiah is saying. Verse 4, you get some insight in how this will come to be. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder... The rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. Now, for you ladies that are in the women's Bible study, this is familiar to you, right? He's talking about Gideon. And even though Gideon kind of made a mess of things kind of toward the end, at one point he really did great. And he trusted the Lord with a very small group of people. And the Lord showed up in a profound way and used just a handful of soldiers to bring great military defeat to a much larger army of enemies. And that story was told time and time again throughout the children of Israel, and it was almost shorthand to remind them of the faithfulness of God. That's what he's saying here. But here's what's great. He's hearkening forward not to Gideon, but to the true and better Gideon. That's what he's saying, that the deliverer would be the true and better Gideon, bringing an even greater victory than on the day of Midian itself. And of course, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. And when we think about this, we think about the yoke of the burden of sin that Jesus has broken for us. We think about the, 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 the rod of the oppressing of the enemy that Jesus has broken for us. The ultimate defeat of sin and death in the grave that Jesus has wrought for us. So here are these people under great duress in deep darkness. 
that are being told that there is a day coming even out of the disaster that they were in in which darkness would be no more and light would indeed shine, which defeat would be banished and victory would come and it would come through this deliverer. Verse 5 goes even further into the extensive nature of this deliverance. It says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, this might not mean a whole lot to us, but this would have meant a great deal to them. Because again, they were under the thumb of military oppression. It's very possible that they had literally seen soldiers walk through the blood of even their relatives. It's very possible that they would have seen exactly what Isaiah would have been referring to here. And he's saying there is a day coming when even the worst of what you went through is going to be done away with. That there will be a day of peace. That there will be a day when all these instruments of war will be turned away. And he'll get into that more in just a bit, verses 6 and 7. But here's what's so interesting about this. All this is interesting up to this point. But it is the instrumentality of how this is going to come to pass. The deliverance that he is forecasting would come through a child. Now think about that. These folks would have been looking for a military conqueror. And now he comes along and his encouragement to them is, listen, there's going to be deliverance and it's going to come through a baby. You think about that today, and even today it seems baffling. How in the world could deliverance come through a baby? Well, obviously, again, we know that this is going to be the Lord Jesus, but I think this gives us some insight into how the Lord often works. You see this in the New Testament, how he will use the simple and foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And in our day, we are taught the way up in the world is to step on everybody else along the way to get yours and get what you want. But what is the way of the kingdom? It's the path of humility. It's not to seek the highest place, it's to seek the lowest place. It's not to be served, but to serve. The upside down nature of the kingdom is apparent to us right here, even in how this deliverance would come. It would come through a child. Look at verse 6. He says, For, or because, a ch to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And it's interesting Hebrew here because the way the word child is used is it's placed in a place of emphasis. So it's almost as if the, the author is, is emphasizing the word child. For to us a child is born. So don't miss this. Hear it. O Israelites, hear it, Christians today. And also another writer pointed this out. I thought this was interesting as well. Look at the specific words that are used here. To us, a son is given. And the point that they were making there was, this is the grace of God on display. He didn't say, you guys, good behavior and listening. Now you've earned for me to bring this child of deliverance. It's exactly the opposite. He's saying, I'm gifting you this 
child. I am giving him to you. It's also interesting, too, that this baby was also forecast back in Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what else is true about this baby? Look at the rest of verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's just roll over those names again. That this child will be the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now, before we get into all those, let me, let me make one other comment here about the government being upon his shoulder. One thing that I thought was interesting there at that time in history is that there would have been kind of an ensign or a patch almost that would be worn on the shoulder uh, by a ruler that would indicate who he was and what the kingdom was about. And that's part of what is being said here, is that it will be obvious when this baby comes that he will be the emissary of his father and his kingdom. And you think about all the things that we're going to reflect on in the next few weeks about the nature of Jesus' coming and how it will be significant that he was in a manger and not in a palace and all the things that we've learned in the Gospel of John over the past year, all the miracles that Jesus did. They had a specific multifaceted purpose that he was helping out the people that needed help in front of him but he was also giving a window and showing what his kingdom will be like. One day when Jesus fully and finally sets up his kingdom, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more people taking advantage of other people. There will be light and life and harmony and all for the glory of God. So even the way God sends his deliverance through this being a baby and not a conquering ruler, and then also the, the, the government being upon his shoulder to indicate the type of kingdom it's going to be, not a single detail was unspecific or by chance. Everything that God said through Isaiah came to pass, and all of these things that are said about the Lord Jesus are so wonderfully true. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about each one of them. The wonderful counselor. That means that he is the divine source of eternal wisdom and comfort. And the, the, the divinity in that is important. You don't see it as clearly in the English as you do in the Hebrew, but this word wonderful has overtones of deity. He's not just the best counselor you ever ran across. The type of counsel that he gives is qualitatively different because of his divine nature. And you also think about how relevant and poignant this would have been to them in their moment. Because on the human end of things, a lot of the, the awfulness and the deep darkness that they would have been experiencing was because their leader, Ahaz, had failed them. He was supposed to trust God and lead them to trust God. And instead, he took matters into his own hands and made an absolute mess for the entire nation. 
And so when we think about this, we need to, again, avoid his mistake, but also think about the wonderful counselor that we have access to through his spirit. The wonderful counselor that has given us his word. The wonderful counselor that has given us his church to come alongside and encourage and to bounce things off of and to offer counsel to us in the name of Christ. And so when we think about this, we need to think about what a wonderful gift that is. That we have the ability, that we have the invitation, that we have the group of people that God will wonderfully counsel us through. Now, the, the, the stories that we tell one another and the counsel that we give one another, is that infallible? Of course not. But friends, I know people all over this town that would love to have relationships like we have in this church, that would love to have people that they could call upon and say, hey, I'm facing this big thing at work. What do you think I should do? Or even if you don't have any ideas, would you at least pray for me? Friends, that is a gift that the wonderful counselor has given us, that he mediates his care to us in part through his church and through these relationships. Let's not take that for granted. Let's take full advantage of that so that when you have something that you brush up against and you're like, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's with parenting, maybe it is with, with finances, you've got people around you that the Lord wants to give wonderful counsel through. Again, it's not infallible, but it's helpful, and we need to take full advantage of it. Let's lean in to the wonderful counsel that he's given us through the church. Now, beyond that, what about the wonderful counsel in Scripture? Think about this. The Bible doesn't speak directly to every single issue that we can come across, right? I mean, it's hard to write a document thousands of years ago that, are speak, that is speaking directly to smartphone use today in 2023. But boy, it still speaks to it, right? It still gives us principle and wisdom and counsel and so on. And then you think about some of those other issues that I illuminate. We talk about uh, work issues, talk about family, talk about financial management. The Bible speaks to all of those things in its, in its way. And that's part of the reason why we make such a big deal about biblical preaching here on Sundays. It's not simply that we could get more people to come here, me and David and Aaron and others talk. We, we, that's not what it's about. It's about us receiving wonderful counsel through the word from the wonderful counselor. That's why showing up to small group and being invested in Thrive Group and other relationships and reading books and listening to podcasts, that's why all those things matter. Because the Lord is giving wonderful counsel to us through the faithful teaching of Scripture. And then also, finally, just through himself, the Spirit. Now, again, you can get off the rails with this, and we've talked about that plenty of times. But, friends, may we never, ever, ever take for granted that we can go directly to the Lord through his Spirit and pray and cast all of our cares upon him and simply cry out to God and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Please help me. The Lord hears every one of those prayers. And through his word, 
and through his people and through research and all kinds of other ways, the Lord answers those prayers. But we need to lean into his wonderful counsel in all of its forms and not fall into the horrible trap that Ahaz and these people did. Part of the joy and the wonder of Christmas is that this wonderful counselor is available to us. Let's never forget it. Now, some of these others here. What about the fact that he is the mighty God? Best way to understand this is that this is God himself and all of his power and his glory. Uh, another metaphor here, that he is a powerful warrior and no one can stand in his way. And this would have, again, meant so much to them because what had they just experienced? This horrible military defeat. And so they are being told that from them eventually will, will come this conquering warrior that will be God himself. And again, let's connect this to all the things we've been learning about in the Gospel of John. All these months, time after time after time after time, what was one of the central messages that Jesus was communicating? It's that he was God. And so again, this whole modern scholarship idea, quote-unquote scholarship, that Jesus was just this teacher, and even he didn't think he was divine, that's nowhere in church history that we should take it seriously. He is God. He always has been, he always will be, and that was his central claim. And so when you see this here, hundreds and hundreds of years, that that is exactly who would come, it needs to further bolster and encourage our faith that we worship and serve not just a mighty or not just a wonderful counselor who is very near to us, but a mighty God who is strong and exalted above us. Theological types would call this both, you have uh, transcendence in mighty God and eminence in the wonderful counselor. So I think part of the application for us here is to simply take this as true and to be helped by it. That whatever you are dealing with today, not only are you not dealing with it alone, but you are dealing with it with the power of the mighty God. That he is with you and for you in Christ, and he will help. That's who the Lord Jesus is. Look at the next one here, the everlasting father. Now, let me say this, because some people could look at this and, okay, we're talking about Jesus here. How can Jesus be the everlasting father? Well, it, it's not talking about father in a way that causes us to get the Trinity wrong. They're using the word father here in a different way. It speaks to his care. He cares for us like a father. He cares for his people like only he can. He is a benevolent protector, just like you see also in Isaiah 22, Job 29. And he cares for them in the way that, sadly, Ahaz should have but didn't. And I think that this would be helpful to us in a number of different ways. If you were here and you are a father, this is the kind of compassionate mercy, guidance, and love that all of us want, that we need divine help to be able to embody. 
We need to pray and ask that in the way that Jesus fatherly cares for us, we care for our families and our children that way. We need to ask for that. We need to lean into that. Also, on the other side of this, this aspect can be hard for a lot of people. And it can be hard around Christmas because I alluded to this before, but let me, let me flesh it out a little bit further. At Christmas, it is not always the happiest time of year. In fact, if you really study some of the, the darker statistics, you see that suicides often go up around the holidays because people are reminded of the type of family they don't have or the abuse and the trauma that they endured coming up or, or whatever. And so if that's part of your story tonight, let me say this to your heart from Scripture. If you had a poor father, God is not like him. He is the exact opposite of him. He doesn't break promises. He keeps promises. He is not unfaithful. He is faithful. He is not unkind. He is the most kind. And part of the glory of what is being prophesied here hundreds of years before Jesus came is that Jesus comes with the fatherly care that all of us need, but not all of us have experienced. So if this season is hard for you for that reason, you need to know that you got a wonderful counselor you can talk to about it, a mighty God who can do something about it, and an everlasting father that wants to father you in the right how about one more hymn? The Prince of Peace. This means that his rule is one of justice and peace. And let me tell you, again, we've talked about this repeatedly, but the context here is so key. What have they just experienced? This military disaster, constant war, and now oppression. And the forecast is that there will be a day when that's going to go away. And then at the beginning of verse 7, we'll go ahead and speak to it here, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. So once Jesus fully and finally sets it right, it's going to be extensive, expansive, and never-ending. We can't even wrap our heads around that. We live in a world where every day on the news, there's some kind of new military problem. The obvious stuff with Israel and Hamas and so on, Ukraine and Russia and so on, these heartbreaking stories. Our world is so broken. And the reality is, is if we knew everything that was going on, it would be even worse than it is. But there's a day coming where there will be none of that. There's a day coming where every bit of that won't even be a thought in our minds because of the rule and reign of the Prince of Peace and his government, there will be no end of it. So I think part of the application here is that we pray and we work for peace and we, we try to help any way that we can. There's 10,000 ways to help. But I think that perhaps a larger application beyond that is to let the forecast of that day that is out there that is coming, pull us forward in this day. Let it give us hope. 
Let it put a longing in our hearts for the day that is to come where his rule and reign will be set up forever and it will continue to expand. Now on the home stretch here, look at this. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So he's kind of restating what he said there. But he also throws in this bit here about the throne of David and over his kingdom. So again, this is... The, the forecast that, that Jesus wouldn't be just some random person, but he was going to come through this line of David. So we'll get into that in the coming weeks. That's part of the, the glory of the Christmas story. But you also think about what these folks would have known, how Abraham would have been chosen to be the, the channel of blessing far beyond that. And they would have looked at their life and their experience and said, oh my gosh, what in the world could God do with us? You talk about making a mess. We have made a mess of what God wanted to do. And here the prophetic encouragement is. You haven't messed it up so bad that God can't still do what he was going to do. That he's going to come on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And that's how he's going to do it. So again, think about the hope and the encouragement that that would have been for them and also think about the kind of hope and encouragement that that could be for us. I don't know about y'all, but there have been a few times in my life when I felt like I had messed something up so bad that there was just no hope. I mean, there was, there was no way out of whatever it was. And yet God still made a way. Jesus came on the throne of David, even in the midst of everything that had gone wrong. But I want to close by talking about this last phrase here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One writer went so far as to say they actually thought this was the most important sentence of the whole section. I might disagree with that. I think I, I like to talk about those things about Jesus. But I will say verse 7 is pretty important. Because what it shows to us is that we can take this to the bank. And we don't use this word zeal very often, at least not in a positive way. But the Hebrew lexicon describes this word as ardor, zeal, and jealousy. There's a cognate with it for an Arabic word, actually, that talks about to become intensely red. That somebody gets flooded blood to their face and, they, and it shows the deep emotion within and what's interesting about this is that he's talking about God in this way so what is it that God is zealous for what is it that he's so committed to that he's going to go through all this to make it happen well that's our last point today he is committed to the salvation of his people that in the midst of their absolute disaster and failure, he is still going to bring Jesus. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. He is going to do it. Some of the other ways that this, that this word is used, you, you see this over in Isaiah 42, 13. He compares God with a warrior psyching himself up for going up into battle. He stirs up his zeal. Isaiah 63, it's the same idea. 
you look at Jesus in the New Testament, we saw this in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 2. What was it that was said when, when he cleared out the temple? He said, zeal for your house has consumed me. And all of these things point to the type of passion and follow-through and wherewithal God has to bring this deliverer and bring deliverance for his people. And I think that needs to encourage us in a couple of ways. First of all, if you're here tonight and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus in a personal way, you need to look and see how serious God is about getting the gospel to you. That through all of the failures of the children of Israel, through all of the, the awfulness throughout history to try to suppress this gospel message, here it is tonight, and it's for you. And if you want to be saved, and you are willing to transfer the leadership of your life over to Jesus, to leave behind your life of sin and, and follow after Christ, he will save you, just like he saved anybody that's put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he is zealous to tell you the good news of his love for you. If you're here and you already know Christ, I hope that encourages your heart. That out of all of the messes that all of us made before we came to know Christ, they weren't enough to drown out the good news. That all of our darkness could not extinguish his light. That all of the sin throughout all the world and all of history could not overtake the zeal of the Lord to get Jesus here, for Jesus to live the perfect life that we should have lived and then die the substitute's death that we deserve. None of that could cancel any of Jesus' work out because the zeal of the Lord of hosts was set on accomplishing this purchase. Isn't that incredible? That we can trust God, that we can cling to God, that we can be helped by God because the zeal of the Lord of hosts has accomplished the sending of this Christ, and we celebrate it not just at Christmas, but every year. So I want to close tonight with this quote. It's from the Preach the Word commentary. I think Ray Ortland actually wrote this because it sure sounds like Ray. But let me just read it for us, and I think it'll help. He said this, Look at Jesus as the wonderful counselor he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's get behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. He is a king of the most unparalleled clemency and grace. Never was any kingdom ruled by a government so mild and gentle and gracious. He is exceedingly gracious in the matter of ruling his people by sweetly and powerfully influencing their hearts by grace, not governing them against their wills, but powerfully inclining their wills. History is going his way. The child is the king of kings to end all kings. Saving us from our failure, lifting us into his own justice and righteousness. He is Jesus Christ the Lord, our 
crucified, risen, reigning, and coming Savior. And he's not coming back just to tweak this problem and that one. He will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever. And the best part is, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The empire of grace will forever expand. So we live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness is our strength and his folly is our wisdom. And we know that there will be enjoying of his triumph forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating and intensifying because of him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, where do you most need that encouragement tonight? That even in the deepest darkness, the brightest light shines. Wherever that is, let's go before the Lord and talk with him about it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful for this passage. And we're not just thankful for the truthfulness of it, we are thankful that it is true and bearing fruit in our lives tonight. That you didn't just follow through and do these things, but you followed through and you did these things, and it has real implications for us tonight. That our eternity is transformed by what we've learned tonight. That our real difficult Real-life situations can be helped tonight because of the truths in this passage. Lord, we so thank you for that. And we pray that you would administer that balm, if you will, to the wounds in all of our hearts that we brought in here this week. That you would minister the truth of your word and your grace to all of our weary hearts tonight. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Continue to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' mighty name.